We're going to look at Genesis chapter 4 today, and we're still in these early... Go back and listen to the podcast if you haven't um, joined this series so far. The podcast, the previous podcast, we've talked about the early chapters of Genesis being like that voiceover intro at the first Lord of the Rings movie, where you're getting all of this information super fast, incredible amounts of time are passing, epic battles and ages of heroes and empires and all these things are arising, but the voiceover at the beginning of the movie of Lord of the Rings, the whole point of all of that is to take you from when the ring was created to when the ring ended up in the uh, possession of this little hobbit. That's the whole point of the voiceover and why the ring matters to begin with. So it's giving you glimpses of things that are going to unfold later and be referenced later in the movie. Well, that's the same way with Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 is like the voiceover preview of the rest of not just the book of Genesis, but of the entire Torah and ultimately of the entire Bible. So the things that we're seeing in Genesis 1 through 11 are these epic, long spans of time. We talked about, you know, creation, evolution. Is the earth billions of years old? Is it thousands of years old? And we saw how the Genesis account is fine with either. Uh, it doesn't demand one or the other necessarily. And so we can look to what science tells us and what our observations of the world around us tell us in order if we want to reconstruct world history and geological history. But Genesis is not concerned with giving us the um, uh, geological detail. It's concerned with giving us theological detail. And so what we're seeing in these opening passages, again, think of it like the voiceover at the beginning of the first Lord of the Rings movie. That's where we are. So we have questions. Like when I'm watching, I'm, I'm geeking out on Lord of the Rings here a little bit, but it's just because so many people have seen that movie. When you're watching Lord of the Rings the, for the first time, you see all of these armies and all of these people and all of these names get mentioned like Isildur and, um, you know, the the uh, Sauron and, and these, and you're like, who are these people? Who are these? What's going on here? And <clears throat> what's happening is the story is advancing faster and not giving you all of the answers to the questions that you wouldn't want to be like, whoa, whoa, hold on, slow down. Let's unpack this. Let's see what you're talking. You know, I have questions about the first age of men or the dwarves and the mining too deep and what they uncovered down there. And all you have all these questions and the text is like, Mm -mm, we're not we're not about that that stuff will come later and we may dive into some of that later but we are getting you to the main story which is going to pick up when we introduce the for the character frodo and so that's genesis does that same thing it gives you all of these it raises genesis the early chapters of genesis 1 through 11 raise far more questions than they answer in terms of anthropology human development geological uh information but again, that's not the purpose of Genesis 1 through 11. So the narrator's like, yeah, you're probably going to have all these questions. Cool. Uh, ask somebody else because my focus is to get you to the covenant, which is Abram, as we know, Abraham. So everything about this is covenant oriented from the animals mentioned in creation to the plants mentioned in the garden uh, to the, to, to the, as we're going to see today, the occupations of the early humans in the story. These are all things that we will want to fill in the gaps. And you have to be careful, readers of the Bible, you have to be careful filling in gaps that Scripture does not fill in. There are whole museums, there are whole displays, there are whole ministries dedicated to filling in gaps that Scripture doesn't fill in. 
And that's a danger because that takes us away from the focus of the text into hypotheticals or conjectures that we find interesting or curious that the text never does. So just be aware of that. It doesn't mean you can't ask the questions. For sure you can ask the questions. It doesn't mean you can't look for answers. But just beware when people are focused more on what the text doesn't say, like how many animals were on the ark, or how far the flood reached, or how old the earth is. All of these things, just beware when people start focusing too much on that rather than the rest of Genesis, the rest of the covenant story, the story of Israel, the narrative of scripture. Just be careful. There's a lot of that out there, even among good, well-meaning Christians. So let's jump into Genesis 4, because what we ended was God banished Adam and Eve after the first human pair uh, showed disobedience and rebelled. They gave their authority to the serpent rather than ruling over, subduing the serpent as part of the world that they were supposed to take care of, to rule over, to have dominion over, to fill the earth and subdue. That was all the plan. It got hijacked immediately. And they gave their authority by, by siding with the serpent over God. They gave their authority to the serpent. And this is why for the rest of scripture, uh, this evil force who later we will come to know personified as the accuser or Satan, the Hasatan, the accuser, this, this, we wonder why does Satan have such authority? Where does he get this authority from? And as the Bible story unfolds on a large scale, and especially by the time we get to the gospels and revelation, we see that that authority was the authority that humanity was supposed to possess. So when Satan tempts Jesus in, in the Gospels and says, um, you know, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth, that's only a temptation if he's actually able to do it. So how could he be able to do it? Because he has authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. Why? Because humanity gave him that authority at the beginning. So all of this ties together. There are strands from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, 4 that connect all the way into the Gospels, Revelation. And you're going to see these things popping up from time to time, and they will all be kind of referencing. The Bible is like this cool, uh, it, it's like uh, my friend Tim Laniac says the, the Bible is like this massive Wikipedia text with all of these hyperlinks embedded in it. And so every time you find a word, you click on it, and it'll take you to like 50 other instances where that word appears, and it'll explain it more, just like Wikipedia. You know, you read an article, you click on a hyperlinked word, it'll take you to the article about that word. Scripture works that way as well. It's all interconnected. So the more we know scripture, the more we see those connections, but sometimes we miss them. And I try to, in these Bible studies, I try to just point out some of those connections along the way so that you see them as you're reading along on your own. So that's where we are. The, the first human pair has been uh, expelled from God's presence. They've, they've been sent out of Eden, out of the garden rather, um, and <clears throat> their, their entrance is blocked. Their entrance to God is blocked by an angelic presence or, or basically God saying, you're not coming back here. You, you have to now go out. Your mandate is still there. They still have to fill the earth, subdue it, um, have dominion over it. But right now, uh, we're at the beginning stages of that. So everything is new in the minds of the reader, even though we don't know how long has, we don't know how much time has passed. So now Genesis chapter four, it says, Adam, and I'm going to correct, I'm reading from the NIV 1984, but I will correct it frequently because sometimes it, it, it doesn't mistranslate. It just 
doesn't translate in a way that brings out some things that you might find interesting. And so I'll try to highlight those. The text says, <clears throat> literally in Hebrew, it says, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So Adam knew his wife. That word to know is a euphemism in Hebrew, not all the time, but uh, a lot of times for marital sex. Um, there are other ways of talking about sex to lie with, to take, to go into. These are all Hebrew terms for sex, but this one's my favorite, and it's right at the beginning. The first recounted sex act. Remember the first command in Genesis God gave to humanity, have lots of babies. Go have lots of sex, make lots of babies, fill this earth. So they're doing what God had commanded. Sex is not a result of the fall. It was commanded before the fall. But what we see is through the entry of sin into the world and the disruption of um, the head of creation, which is the male-female relationship and in their relationship to God, that now what was to be uh, a creative, consummate, beautiful act is going to take on a little bit of danger and uncertainty, both the sexual relationship and the childbearing uh, process. <clears throat> but Adam knew his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. And there's other ways to translate this passage. Uh, I won't get into it. You can look at the commentaries. There's question about what she's saying. The word, the name Cain is, sounds like the Hebrew word uh, for to acquire. And so it's kind of like she's, Hebrew names a lot of times have puns or they have assonance where they kind of sound like a word that they're related to. Uh, we'll see these as we go. You see these all throughout Genesis. <clears throat> but um, th the concept is she is now bringing forth a life. And uh, so she gives a name that's suitable for that, I guess. Uh, verse two, later she gave birth to his brother Hebel or Abel. And Hebel means vapor or vanity or emptiness. And it's a strange name. We don't get the etymology of it. Uh, and But just like the name, uh, Abel is going to be this character who's very fleeting. He's going to come and go from the text. So verse 2, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. This is, people have said, this is the ancient a story about how herdsmen and farmers and how they've come to be at odds with each other. And so this is just like a tale about that. I mean, maybe, but that's not always the case. Um, there's a lot of usually herdsmen, sedentary herdsmen had conflict with nomadic herdsmen rather than herdsmen and farmers. But it's uh, more, rather than trying to read all this stuff back into the text, I think it's just interesting to note that now we're seeing after the fall, we're seeing a division of labor for the first time. In the garden, you know, they were able to do everything together, the man, the woman, or at least were intended to. Now you see things are going to start being divided, human labor, because human labor is going to enter the picture in this chapter. It, it, this gives us glimpses of where we are society-wise, at least by this point in the text, because if it's just... Think about this. If it's just Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, just, just the four, you know, we think of that sometimes, or that's how it's presented in storybooks. Um, you don't really farm, you don't really develop the concept of farming or shepherding for just four people. Those are things that develop when there are many people to feed and many people 
to clothe. And so what we're seeing is these occupations that they're given, they make sense if we think of them as archetypal figures, as, as figures at the, the beginning of humanity, but not maybe not limited literally to just four individual people. So in other words, at this, even at this point in the text, we know Adam and Eve are going to have other sons and daughters. The text is going to tell us that, chapter 5. But even at this point in the text, there's, there's hints or concepts that, that this is a what we would consider somewhat of a normal functioning world. And that tells us there, that this may be more archetypal than literal in terms of how it's being portrayed. And so anyway, just let that kind of all percolate. There's so much you could go into. But, but again, these chapters are fleeting, they're fast-paced, they're wide in scope, and we don't want to drill down and try to limit and say this is the specific literal picture of what happened in the world, because the style of writing doesn't lend itself well to that. So that's what we want to keep in mind. Uh, verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, some people, this has raised all kinds of questions. Why did God accept Cain's, Abel's offering and not Cain's? There have been all kinds of conjectures. Ancient people, all the way to modern interpreters. Some people have said, because growing stuff out of the ground isn't a living sacrifice. So Cain's offering didn't involve the shedding of blood, which is so important in, in sacrifices. But that's not true. Um, his, sacrifices and offerings don't require blood in Leviticus later. Blood, there are grain offerings. There are first fruits offerings. So there's nothing wrong with bringing drink offerings, fruit offerings, grain offerings. Sac all sacrifices didn't have to be blood meat sacrifices. So we can't say that's the reason. Others have said, well, the ground is what God cursed in the in chapter 3. Cursed is the ground. It'll bring forth thorns and thistles, etc. And so Cain was bringing something that had been cursed by God and presenting it as an offering. That's why God didn't accept his sacrifice, whereas Abel was bringing from the flocks. Again, not a very convincing position, I don't think, because later in Scripture, things from the ground produce are accepted sacrifices by God. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, at least in the mindset of an Israelite reading this at the time of the Exodus, it doesn't make a lot of sense that those, that, that would be the reason why. Um, people have suggested other things as well. Uh, a hint in the text may be where it goes out of its way to not just that Abel brought offering, or from his flock, but he brought the, the fatty portions or the best portions. Um, the fat portions of an offering were seen as especially holy and dedicated to God, especially desirable and pleasing to God. So they said, it's, it's the, the text, it doesn't demand, now be careful, the text isn't saying this is exactly it, but it's hinting at maybe, maybe that what Cain brought was just some of what he had produced because it says he brought some of his things he brought from his uh produce but abel gave <clears throat> the best of his and so there could be something in that of cain doing the bare minimum versus abel giving his best to god and i don't 
think that's too far off the mark. I don't, I think that's a pretty good, I think that's plausible in the text. Not certain, but I think it's plausible. The New Testament authors will pick up on and they will take the approach that the difference was had nothing to do with the offerings themselves, but it was the spirit in which they were offered. And so Cain's sacrifice, his offering was not accepted by God because God, who is the only one who could know other than Cain what's in his heart, uh, looked on Cain and knew that he wasn't, his his heart was not in it. And And later this fits with Israel's reality because the prophets will talk all about God says, I don't want your sacrifices. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to me. I don't need the offerings of your rams or your bulls. I don't need any of your gifts. What I want and need is your heart, your obedience. Your gifts don't matter to me. The gifts are just a way I've been set up. For, I have set up for you to express in community with each other, your giving of the best. But the actual gift itself, God, is, we saw in like way back in the first couple of weeks, God is not like the other ancient Near East deities. He doesn't need humanity to feed him, which is what the gods in Mesopotamia had created humans for, to feed them, literally. And God's like, I don't need that from you. So the New Testament looks back at this and sees that whatever the reason for God not accepting Cain's offering, it had to do with the inward disposition of the worshiper of Cain and Abel. And so Cain's response to this is, is his face is downcast, his face is sunken. Uh, it's an idiom, a figure of speech, meaning sad or dejected or kind of pouting, uh, possibly even like depressed or, or just downcast. And, and he was angry about this. Verse six, God notices, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And here's a fascinating passage in this book. Verse 7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, or its desire is for you, but you must master it. So this is a fascinating verse. I, I did a whole uh, semester worth of study on this verse as the main anchor in a, in a biblical theology of sin. And this, this, this is the first instance of the word sin in the Bible. So the first time the word sin, chata in Hebrew is used, it, this, this is the verse. And the first time sin is mentioned, it's not mentioned, the name, as just breaking a rule or disobedience. It's not an abstract uh, uh, adjectival quality. The first time sin is mentioned in the Bible, it is mentioned using the verb, crouching or lying in wait like when a lion crouches you know stalking its prey that's the verb that god says sin is doing at the door the metaphorical tent opening of abel <clears throat> and so sin is depicted in its very first instance in the bible and you can trace this thread all the way through the bible that sin is depicted with an animated almost personified presence as something that's antithetical to the purposes of God and something that is waiting to devour, to pounce, to, to, to seize us. And, and so sin is like in chapter three, when, when sin entered the world um, through the disobedience and the rebellion, it's like this, this 
antagonistic force came into the human ex experience. And for the rest of scripture, this force is going to constantly be stalking and hunting and seizing and devouring humanity. Sin is a devouring force, an animated force. It's not just a term for, oh, I messed up. Yes, the word chata does mean to fall short. And yes, the word sin in Hebrew, hamartia, does mean to miss the mark, like shooting an arrow and missing the target. Yes, yes, that's what the literal words mean. But the picture of sin that we get in the Bible is much more than that. In Romans 7, Paul will flesh it out even more when he's describing what it's like being in bondage to sin as his master. So sin is once again personified by Paul in Romans 7 when he's talking about life in Adam. In Romans 7, Paul's not talking about his normal everyday life, by the way. You may hear that from some teachers, uh, but it's not the case. What Paul's doing in Romans 7, and you go back and reread it, he is recapitulating the experience of Adam and the first commandment given and what that does to sin and how it empowers sin to, to come alive and seize its prey, which is us. So we're here at the beginning of things. That, sin has not been this force that's taken over and enslaved all of humanity yet. In fact, God's question implies that we don't know how, but Cain is somehow able, <laughs> pun intended, uh, Cain is somehow able to master this sin that's crouching at his door. Now, of course, looking back through later theological lenses, we would say, well, it would have to be through grace. It would have to be through the empowerment of God. It would have to be ultimately through the substitutionary atonement of the seed of the woman who God had promised in the previous chapter through Jesus. <clears throat> however all that works out, however you do the systematic theological math, the number here, the problem here, God says, sin wants you and it's waiting. And its desire is to completely possess you. And you are called to overcome, to master it. He says that to Cain. What we see later and as scripture unfolds and as sin continues to spread and permeate throughout humanity is we start to see over and over and over again how it's impossible now to do what God initially wanted or expressed for Cain to do. That, that whenever that happened, whenever sin became too strong to be mastered, uh, right now it can't be. And even the pagan moralists that Paul basically quotes in Romans 7, they say the same. People like Ovid, um, Epictetus, and others, they would, they would talk about, we know what's right to do. I know the good. I just can't do it. Reason persuades me one way, desire another. I know the better, but I do the other. I believe that's Ovid. That's either Ovid or Epictetus. And Paul says the same thing. I know the good that I should do, but the evil, that's what I do. Who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? Romans chapter 7. So we're seeing the, the beginning of that process starting to unfold. Sin has been let loose among humanity, and it is crouching to devour. And it's going to devour Cain uh, because his response is anything but repentance. So he's given a chance, just like Adam and Eve, given a chance to respond to God's grace. His response that we're about to see is going to end up with death and banishment, just like his parents. We're already seeing this recapitulated.
So God gives Abel the, or Cain this challenge, this kind of a, a soft rebuke, not an angry rebuke, but this, this soft rebuke and, and kind of putting him on the path. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. He rose up and he killed him. The first sin in human history that we is recorded, eating a piece of fruit. The next sin, murder. That's how fast sin spirals out of control. That's how fast sin permeates human experience, the snowball effect. And we're going to see it. It's only going to go faster for the rest of Genesis 1 through 11. We're seeing, we are, this is the beginning. We have just stepped over the edge or gotten over the, you know, the roller coaster when you ride it and it's tick, 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 and you get to the top and then it's like, whoa, okay? We're like right here in that process of the downward spiral of sin. And then immediately, murder, first thing. So the Lord said to Cain, just like with Adam, again, notice the recapitulation, just like when Adam sinned and Eve sinned and God came and showed up and said, where are you? God already knew. Now Cain sins, God shows up with a question. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? And that's kind of a technical term for a guardian, person who oversees the legal affairs of the other. Verse 10, so Cain had his chance. He could have fessed up. He could have repented. He could have done what, just like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve could have repented. They could have fessed up. We don't know what God's grace might have been. God gives his people a chance, just like a parent gives a child a chance. Did you eat the cookie? While the child has crumbs hanging out of his mouth. No, I didn't eat. You know, like you want, you're asking because you want to give them the chance to say what's, to confess and to do the right thing. And God gives humanity that. But his response is sarcastic, bitter, no, no notion of repentance whatsoever. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground. In other words, the place that your brother's blood that has soaked into the field, into the ground, the ground itself is crying out. The blood that's mixed in there, the earth is crying. Your murder has polluted, has ruined this situation and 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 that's an idiom in, in Hebrew of the blood crying out it's a way of saying God doesn't overlook sin that's committed he does take account of it and this is this is huge for us today because we live in a world where there's so much injustice you know so many people die so many people's blood cries out from the ground and we wonder rightly where is there going to be justice you know, when an innocent person is killed by somebody in authority and then that authority figure is let off by a corrupt system, where's the justice? When, when a, a, a victim is uh, trafficking is, is traded around like a, like a, you know, like an item among people with no regard for who this person is as, a, as somebody bearing the image of God, when, when that, we look at that and we're like, where is justice? You know, the, the, the people who, who the, the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world who seem to get away with everything, um, uh, you know, because for everyone caught, there's many others out there. Where is justice for all of the countless victims of their lust and their greed and their sin? And so this passage is, is, is one of many echoes in scripture that says, oh, don't worry. Somebody's hearing that cry. Their blood does cry out from the ground. 
And that's, that's something for us to remember. It's comforting and it's convicting that no sin goes unnoticed. There's, there's no, nothing that gets hidden. Even if it doesn't pop up on social media, there's going to be a day when every deed, every word is accounted for and everything is made right. But we're not there yet. We're at the beginning. So, <clears throat> verse 11, now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So now Cain is banished even from his occupation, even from working the ground that had already been cursed by Adam, by God over the sin of Adam. Now God specifically to Cain is saying, you're going to be a wanderer. You are banished from this ground and, and you're going to work the ground in futility. You're not going to be what you, even what you could have been after the first sin, you've made it exponentially worse by your sin. So Cain's response, once again, no emotion, no remorse. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Or some translations say my iniquity is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Clue number two, that there are other people around. Yeah. Who are these other people? We don't know. We just don't know. We know that Adam and Eve had many other children. We know that they lived much longer human lives at this point in primeval history. So if they were normal childbearing couple and they were living centuries and we don't know how long after they started having children that this whole event takes place. Again, it's not just Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel hanging out and nobody else on the earth. This is one chapter after Genesis 3, but this could have been centuries after Genesis 3. We don't know. What we do know is there are other people on the earth at this point. So humanity has spread out a little bit, or at least there has become a community. And what Cain's worried about is what the scripture will later call a goel an avenger of blood. See, in if you follow the Psychological Podcast, we've talked about this a lot in our Deuteronomy studies uh, and, and um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They talk about the avenger of blood. And the avenger of blood in the ancient world, before there's a police force, a standing army, any of that stuff, the avenger of blood is if somebody in a family is killed, there is a relative, a next of kin or a person designated who's job whose responsibility it is to track down the killer and kill them that's the avenger of blood because by man's blood if man sheds blood man's blood will be shed it's this life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth if you kill someone in the ancient world you have forfeited your life and the only way to restore balance not to make it right or to fix it but to restore balance is for your blood to be shed and so the avenger of blood had a role to seek out and to destroy, to, to, to re avenge the blood of their family. So who is Cain afraid of? Somebody in Abel's family. Somebody who would be a blood avenger. Either someone who's alive at this point in the story or someone who would come along in the future, in future siblings or cousins or whoever. So again, we're just giving glimpses. But there are hints in the text that this is a world in which there are already more sons of Eve, sons of Adam, more 
people on the earth. Because why else would Cain be afraid? And what he does next wouldn't make any sense unless there are already people out there. He says, I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. There's going to be an inversion of this in just a few minutes. Then the, so God's basically saying, no, I will avenge your blood. So in other words, if anybody comes to avenge Abel's blood by killing you, I'll avenge your blood seven times over. I'm going to make it so that you are protected, but you are also banished. And this is kind of like similar to maybe a lifetime in prison sentence instead of a death sentence for Cain. So even in this punishment, there's a note of grace. He punishes, he banishes, but he also protects and puts a mark. Just like with his dad, he sent him out, he banished them from the garden, but he clothed them to protect them for life outside the garden. Now God is protecting, literally putting a mark, a tau, the Hebrew letter tau, the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, putting a mark on Cain. We don't know what kind of mark. It's silly to look for the mark of Cain to try to figure. There's all kinds of folklore and legends that arose around this, but we don't know. The text doesn't say. All we know is God in some way marks Cain out and protects him, seals him. With It could have been a non-literal thing. It could have been something other than an actual, you know, mark. we don't know. We don't know. It could have just been a mark. It could have been something on his forehead or hand or something. We don't know. Sends him out. Uh, so Cain, verse 16, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Nod just means wandering. So the wanderer went out to wander east of Eden. So the further east you move, the more removed from God's presence you are uh, in this pre-flood age. So he's sent out to wander out to the east, somewhere in maybe what today would be the Fertile Crescent uh, modern Iran, Iraq, somewhere in that area. We don't know. The text doesn't really get specific. Verse 17, Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city. He named it after his son Enoch. Time out. Cain did what? Cain lay with his wife. It doesn't say Cain knew his wife, by the way. Um, Cain lay with his wife. Where did his wife come from? Who's his wife? This is where people already are like, Bible's fairy tale, it doesn't make sense. Who, do, who is Cain's wife? Well, again, the text, it doesn't tell us. We have to infer from what we've read so far. There are other people out there. There are other people Cain is worried about will avenge their brother Abel, their family member. So this tells us that at this point, we are far enough along in human history that Adam and Eve have had other sons and daughters who may have also had other sons and daughters. Um, and the lifespans of people at this time from the text are very, very, very long. So we don't know. This could have been hundreds of years after the events of Genesis 3. This could have been five years after. We don't, we don't know. The text doesn't say. But we get hints that long enough time has passed for there to be human communities. Because what does Cain do? Not only does he marry, he builds a city. He builds a city. Now, biblical word city is not, don't think downtown Charlotte, uptown Charlotte, for those of you that aren't from around here. Uh, don't think Manhattan. Don't think even Asheville or Rock Hill or anything. Don't think city like commerce. 
In our culture, cities are used for commerce and culture. In the ancient world, cities had one purpose, one person only, one purpose only, protection. Cities were military fortresses. Cities were walled enclosures that you could do your stuff in the fields and with your flocks during the day. And then at night, when things were a little less protective, you would go back into the city, you would close the gates, and you would hold out. Cities were for protection. And so it makes sense that that's the first thing Cain would do, is build this protection, this fortress, build this city. And that implies also cities were possible, we know from human history and development, that cities were only possible once agriculture was invented. So once agriculture was invented, people didn't have to move around. They didn't have to follow their food source as nomads because they could stay in one place and grow their food. And then they had excess food and they could store that excess food, which is what they do in cities. And that gave them time to have division of labor, which freed up more time to do things like music and culture and technology and tools, all of that stuff. Well, guess what? All of that's in this chapter. It's just condensed or portrayed as an individual and a small collective. But this is telling in large degree world history as we know it, using the archetype character of Cain and his wife and his city and his descendants. And so the genealogies, we come to the first genealogy in Genesis now. And genealogies were never meant to be A, B, C, D, everything exactly in line, exhaustive listing. They're not like modern genealogies where they list every member. Genealogies in scripture skipped generations. Sometimes a name, a person's name, would also be the name of the people. We know this because, heck, Israel. Israel, we think of Israel. Sometimes in the Bible, Israel means the people of Israel. But Israel was a man. Israel was the name that God gave Jacob. So before Israel was ever a people, he was a person. And that's how we have to look at these genealogies is these could be referring to individuals or it could be referring to the, the peoples who came from specific individuals. And so someone being the father of so-and-so would mean someone being the father of the people known as the people of so-and-so. So biblical genealogies are a, a very interesting thing that are frequently misunderstood. What you absolutely can't do is what Bishop James Usher did is use the in the medieval period is to use the dates of a genealogy to just count backwards until you arrive at creation. You can't do that. That's that's a wrong way of using scripture that many people who claim to have a high view of scripture unknowingly employ thinking that they're holding scripture in a high view. They're actually misreading scripture. It's misreading genealogies to use them as genealogical scientific anthropological dating mechanisms. They're not for that. They're literary mechanisms. They're meant to tell a story and they're crafted specifically. There's frequently 10 generations and the seventh in the series of 10 is a specific key individual. That's a constructed genealogy. It's not exactly uh, uh, how, it, how it is in our modern concept of genealogies. And so you see, you see this in the New Testament, in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. He leaves out a few generations in order to construct a genealogy that is three sets of 14 generations, and each set or signifies, symbolizes a period in Israel's history from Abraham to Jesus, and meaning that Jesus is the culmination of all of Israel, which is one of Matthew's main themes is Jesus as Messiah is the new Israel in himself, taking on the identity of all of God's people. 
That's a New Testament content. Check out Bible for the rest of us, uh, the session on the key to understanding the New Testament. We get into a lot more on that concept in that video, disciplodojo.org slash Bible. Let's, let's wrap this up. Cain lay with his wife. She became pregnant. She gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city. He named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mehuyael. Mehuyael was the father of Methu, Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Now we come to this character, Lamech. So he's kind of Cain, Lamech. Okay, this is important because next chapter is going to do a similar thing with Seth, Noah. So we get to Lamech. Verse 19, Lamech married two women. This is polygamy introduced into the human experience now. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other named Zillah. Adah gave birth to Yabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Herdsmen, nomadic herdsmen. His brother's name was Yuval. He was the father of all who played the harp and the flute. So, music, poetry, art. Rip, you getting the commentary? You know I'm recording live. Sorry, Ripkin really likes that verse. So, Yuval was the father of all who played the harp and the flute. Zillah also had a son, Tuval Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tuval Cain's sister was Naama. And the word Cain means, or Cain, it's the same word. It means smith, like one who works with metal or uh, tools. So in this line of Cain, we start to see the origins of nomadic herdsmen, those who wander like Cain did. We start to see the origins of musician, of the arts. Uh, and then we start to see the origins of metallurgy, of technology. And all of this is within the concept of the city which is what we see in human history. This is what anthropological studies will show us as well, is this is fitting the narrative. This is, this is basically, if you extrapolate this out to human history, this is kind of how life develops as well in human history. But, so the authors kind of tell us that this is, you know, where every, again, Genesis is the book of origins, the book of our story, who we are. And so Israel would wonder when they look around at city. Remember, Israel, when they're getting all of this, when they're reading all of this for the first time, or at least in its initial stages, they are wandering in the desert. They are the people who have come out of Egypt. They are the covenant people of God wondering who are we and who is Yahweh and why do we worship him and how did these other people get here and the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and how did they get these things like chariots of bronze and iron and, and you know, all these things that they had. Where did all this stuff come from? And so Genesis is giving in fast forward, fast paced glimpse. It's giving snapshots of these things and their origins, but not in exhaustive detail, which is so maddening for us today. So back to Lamech, because we're almost done. We got like five minutes. Um, after Lamech's genealogy, so we have seven generations, Lamech's the bottom, and then we have his genealogy. It's a segmented genealogy at that point in his children. Then we go back to actually talking about Lamech himself. Lamech said to his wife, his two wives, he said, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. This is how Hebrew poetry works. It'll say something, it'll repeat it. It'll say something, it'll repeat it. That's parallelism. So this is, that's how Hebrew poetry flows. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. So now, Lamech has taken, this is a boast. This is, uh, this is like the first, in the 90s, used to call it gangster rap. 
just bragging about how hard you were, how tough you were to your ladies. And this is what Lamech's doing. He's bragging. He's saying, hey, ladies, listen. Hey, wives of Lamech, listen. My lady, my women. So he's like bragging to his harem. Listen up. You know, this young man wounded me. I killed him. Fool stepped to me. I shot him. You know, he didn't say that. But that's the, the he, a young man wounded me. I killed him. He injured me, struck him out, struck him down. So this is bragging about his prowess and his might and his vengeance and his um, don't mess with him mindset. And then 24, he takes the promise that God made. Remember, God said, if anybody kills Cain, I'll avenge them seven times. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Yeah. I mean, you can also, you always hear him saying that. Like, if Cain is avenged by God seven times, boom, 10 times that for me because I'm that bad. Like, this whole thing is just bragging about his violence, bragging about his reputation, his, his um, name, his, his rep. That's what he, I mean, this is, this is ancient Near East gangster rap. And that is the culmination of the line of Cain. Bragging, culture, industry, music. See, this is not new. This didn't come with the hip-hop generation. This didn't even come with rock and roll. This goes all the way back. From the beginning, music was used as a means of bragging to women. That's... It's still why any guy that plays the guitar today is because he wants to meet girls. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm kind of kidding. But the point is that this this is what kind of the line of Cain. All these advances and these cool things in world history, but the culmination of it, the figure who at the end of the genealogy is Lamech. And we see who he is. Now the passage, verse 25, all the way back to Adam. Adam lay with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel. And she literally says, God has given me or granted me another seed in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of Yahweh. Capital L-O-R-D in your English Bibles, but that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant name. The covenant name of God. So Genesis 4 ends with these, these two directions that the seed of Eve, the seed of the woman, that was God's promise to Eve at the fall was that one day there will always be enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent, and your seed will crush his head even if he will wound your heel. That was the promise that there would be this seed of the woman who would one day come and deliver humanity. So when Eve first has a child, Cain, she thinks, oh, I've, I've acquired a child. So she names him Acquire. And with, with God, and maybe this is going to be the means by which God restores us. Maybe this will be the seed that delivers humanity from its sin. Well, that seed not only doesn't deliver humanity, that seed increases the level of sin. That seed extrapolates or, or multiplies sin and takes it to the level of murder. And then that seed goes on, even as it's banished and removed from the other people of God, the children of Adam and Eve, that seed develops into might and industry and technology and artistry, but it culminates in somebody like Lamech. 
then it jumps back. They have another seed, another promised seed, Seth. And Seth is going to give birth to a son. And, and, and by this time, as humanity begins its spread throughout the earth, humans begin to call on the name of Yahweh. This covenant relationship gets introduced. We don't know how. We don't know what it looked like. We know that God later will have to reintroduce himself as Yahweh to Moses and the Israelites in Egypt. But, but even before that, long before that, he was still the God of Israel who was to come, Yahweh. And it's at this point that now we've gone from a family, like a, an individual couple and their first two children, to now Genesis 5 is going to zoom out real fast. And it's going to start looking at generations. And by the time we get all the way to Genesis 10, after the flood, we're going to have that, again, zooming in on a particular person, Lamech's counterpart in the line of Seth, Noah. And then it's going to zoom out again in Genesis 10 to the table of nations and how people got to where they are. And that'll lead us to Genesis 11. And Genesis 11 kind of puts a cap on how everything we've seen thus far. And it sets the stage for the story of Genesis to begin proper and that's Genesis chapter 12. So that's where we're headed, but we're out of time. Disciple Dojo is entirely donor funded. So if you like any of what we're doing and you want to help see more of it, um, we really, really, really need monthly donors who can keep us going and keep this thing happening. So DiscipleDojo.org, click on the donate button at the top. And if you want to you know, throw a few bucks our way, or if you want to become a monthly donor for any amount, um, that would be most appreciated. But we're about halfway through this Genesis opening uh, saga, and we're going to continue to unpack it and make our way through the book. And so hopefully what's happening is you're getting a foundation that then you go back and you reread these chapters on your own. And, and you remember things that I may have pointed out um, that will help you bring the text to life. So it's not enough to just sit and listen to a Bible study. It, the, the purpose of a good Bible study is to inspire you to, to, for you to go back then and dig around yourself and see what you find. So that's it. You guys have a great week and we'll see you next Tuesday.